I want to make a horror movie about friendship. I feel each of the characters are battling loneliness in their own ways. And loneliness is kind of driving each of them to act the way that they're acting and to do the things that they're doing. I, as I mentioned, was a, a lonely teenager. So I was definitely drawing from those experiences. I was also drawing from the experiences of when you first fall in friendship love, when you identify someone that you're like, I want to be that person's friend. Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Santa's checking lists twice, and all us horror fans are revisiting our favorite Christmas horror films. Black Christmas, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Christmas Evil, Gremlins, Rare Exports, Krampus, the list goes on and on. Here at Spill Your Guts, our Christmas gift to you is two back-to-back -back episodes with the filmmakers of what are sure to become new Christmas horror classics. In this episode, we are sitting down with director Jen Wexler to talk about her new film, The Sacrifice Game. Set in the 70s, the film is a love letter to not just classic Christmas horror, but an atmospheric home evasion story with wicked supernatural flares. It's also a thoughtful and sensitive look at finding friendship and connection. Jen and I sat down to talk about her inspirations, how she fell in love with the Christmas horror genre, the undying influence of Buffy Summers, and why this movie had to be set on Christmas and in the 70s. The Sacrifice Game is now available on Shudder. So, pour yourself some eggnog and sit down by the Christmas tree, and let's explore some festive madness with director Jen Wexler. Jen, how are you? I'm good, Kevin. How's it going? It's going. I'm really pumped to have you here. I loved both The Ranger and your new film, The Sacrifice Game, which I think has so many things going for it for me because, like, first of all, I love Christmas horror. And secondly, just the sort of tropes that you're working with in this movie are all my favorites. Like, uh, so I'm really pumped to get to chat with you about uh, about this movie. Awesome. Let's let's get into it. Let's do it. Um, now, we're recording this way before the holiday season, but folks are going to be hearing this around the time of Santa and sleigh bells jingling and, you know, uh, buying presents and doing all that fun stuff. We're going to get jolly here. I brought, I'm wearing my Krampus shirt. Hell yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're going to get ho, ho, ho jolly and just get into the Christmas swing of things, but maybe a dash of decapitation or gruesomeness along the way. 
So, my first question for you is, I want to know how you fell in love with the movies. Oh, man. Wow. I start small here. See, we start with... (laughs) How I fell in love with the movies. Um, To start with how I fell in love with horror specifically, I'm just going to jump straight to the horror genre. When I was five, I watched um, Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I was obsessed with that TV show on Nickelodeon. Which then... Um, so it's really horror that got me into movies in general. That was a TV show, obviously. But when I was 10 years old, uh, I started watching, you know, the late nineties teen slasher movies like Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer and Urban Legend and The Craft, all of those movies that were coming out at that time. And, um, while I've always been a movie fan, I, you know, my, my parents would take me to see movies forever since I was a little kid. My, my dad is a huge movie fan. Um, it was really horror that spoke to me on a personal level. And that started to become part of, I used I embraced it as like part of my identity. I was the kid in our friend group who liked horror movies where some of my other friends were more afraid of horror. Um, so I, I really do think horror was my gateway. I mean, those movies were my gateway drug, not only into um being a horror fan but also into eventually thinking of myself as a filmmaker and wanting to pursue that and it's funny because people who don't know better like non-genre fans i think often think of horror as being like predominantly a male audience and it's funny because when i was younger and becoming obsessed with her first of all as a young closeted gay kid there there was that factor but also like mostly it was my female friends who would geek out about horror with me and it's funny to me like when I talk to filmmakers now um how how much people have realized that 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 you know not only is is there a notion that oh did that paradigm shift I don't think it ever really was the case I always think that that horror spoke to and still does to people who have been in any way marginalized felt different been outsiders any of that did, did was any of those aspects of horror other than of course being a girl or a young a young woman were there any of those facets of the genre that attracted you to this, this sort of island of misfit toys part of being a horror fan a hundred percent and as you say i think i think many people you know it's changing now i think more more of the mainstream is um is coming to horror but Certainly in the 80s and the 90s, horror had a bad reputation. And as you say, people did think of it as just like, oh, an opportunity to watch people get butchered and, and have, you yeah, know. Topless girls running through the woods and all that exactly. shit. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's kind of what it, I mean, obviously there's those movies too, which are, which are fun for the right I audience. I like some of those movies. Know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love those movies also. But, um. So I think like starting to really um, relate with the characters uh, made me realize, well, made me feel special. Like I had this special understanding of horror that like most people didn't have, certainly not my parents. My mom didn't understand horror at all. I remember she was, I have a memory of being 10 years old and she was talking to another mom and I was overhearing their conversation and they were talking about scream and they were talking about Drew Barrymore's death. And it was like, it was, they, they, they felt like it was 
so wrong. And I was like, oh my God. Too much. It was horrible. Yeah. 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 Um, So I felt special and it started to, you know, these things start to form your identity, especially when you're, you're, when you're um, trying to figure out who you are at that age, feeling like, oh, this is something I only understand, um, uh, made me feel good, made me feel like I had some special understanding of the universe that nobody else had. Um, and then the characters themselves, um, I've, I've shared this elsewhere too, but I'll say like, I had a really hard time when I was in middle school and when in high school, and watching these movies and seeing the final girl like escape the killer and then take him down and be the person that survives at the end helped me. I was like, if if they can survive that, I can get through another day of high school. So yeah. yeah. Did you have a favorite final girl? Um, not a final girl exactly, but Buffy Summers was a very big influence in my life. Me too. I was a huge Buffy fan. Yeah, huge, yeah. huge, huge. I think it's impossible to understate what an influence Buffy had on a generation of people who grew up with that series. It's It was so, you know, groundbreaking in so many ways and uh, by far the best musical episode of the show ever done. Oh, yeah, totally. And also the episode where they're silent the whole episode. Oh, yeah. Hush, yeah. I was I, we had Doug Jones on the show and I talked to him about about that episode because he played the gentleman you know with the oh yeah um and uh and we we sort of uh, he, he I think it was very clear to him what a Buffy geek I was <laughs> yeah. but but I yeah um yeah it's true it's funny you, you you know for me it was like I, I remember watching these movies and you know I was Jamie Lee Curtis was my gal I loved Terror Train and Halloween was my first obsession, but then became Terror Train and Prom Night and all these movies. And I think it's interesting and, and maybe, you know, and, and I'm sure this has been analyzed by people far smarter than I am, but but that, you know, uh, I think for for young gay people, the gender part wasn't a barrier and you still could see in her, you know, particularly Laurie Strode character, a girl who's a bit of an outsider, who was sensitive and, and emotional and, and who persevered and survived the night and, and and you felt like hey you know maybe that would be me in that situation and I, I think that you know provides a a connective tissue for a lot of young people uh that are coming to their own with whatever it is whether it's their gender or their sexual orientation or whatever thing makes them feel other than these characters um can be a, a great sort of empowering way to 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 get into cinema and to see you know, like, I remember, I've told this story on the show a thousand times, but I remember being with a group of my friends, and they're all talking about their favorite, like, action stars, like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis and all that, and they were like, who's yours? And I was like, Donald Pleasance, and they were like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> That's um, hilarious. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I was like 10 or something, and they were just looking at me like, who the, what the, and I was just, like, I, I was obsessed with Donald Pleasance. He was my rock star hero. Um, Now, when That's did you... Yeah. <laughs> what were like some of your favorite franchises other, other than Buffy? Other than Buffy, favorite franchise. Well, certainly <laughs> as I um started to get a little bit older, uh I I went back and discovered the movies that were influencing the movies that I had been watching in the late 90s. So, Halloween went back, watched that. By the way, I love Halloween, I love Halloween 2, and I love Halloween H2O 
so much. I love uh, H2O. It's so funny that you just said that. Like yesterday, I was talking to a writer friend of mine, and he was talking about how he didn't appreciate the new Halloweens because he was like, I'm kind of tired of these movies that are all like trauma movies. Like everybody in them has been through some trauma, and it feels like lazy writing to just make us empathize. Oh, they've been through trauma. We have to feel sorry for them. And he was like, you know, and they did that with Laurie Strode. It really bugged me. I was like, yeah, but you know where they nailed that, where they didn't abuse it? It was in H2O, and it was, I went on this rant yes. about how great h2o it, is yeah that's a great i know what's an alternate reality track from the track that we're now on with the halloween movies but i loved that that she like moved across the country with her son josh hartnett became like the head of a boarding school had an alcohol problem and then her brother tracked her down i love all of it and you know interestingly i rewatched it while i was in post on sacrifice game while we were editing uh last October and I realized I was like oh I didn't because I hadn't watched it since I was maybe 12 years old but I realized like oh I think Sacrifice Game was a little bit influenced by this there's like a boarding school <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Very yeah. By themselves. yeah you know and, and, and like anyone that's watching this I'm sure has seen H2O and if you haven't like I'm about to spoil the ending so plug your ears or fuck off or whatever you need to do but I'm spoiling the end of H2O and really, if you haven't seen it, you probably shouldn't be listening to Spill Your Guts. Um, <laughs> but that end where she like, where the music's thumping and she, and Michael reaches for her and she reaches him for a moment. And you're like, no, 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 don't. He's And then she just whoosh, chops his head off. And then she just takes those big breaths to that thumping score and it ends. I remember thinking, end it here. This is the, you will never have a better ending to the Halloween franchise than this. End it here. Yep. Yeah, they didn't do that, so <laughs> but but wouldn't that have been to me? That will always be the perfect way to have ended the arc of Laurie Strode. Yeah, there's a slight moment where it seems like they might touch, and then it's like, nope, she's not falling for that. Yeah, she's yeah. too. She's done. She wants. Yeah. She wants closure and to move. And that, like, to me, that was such a great way to handle a character who was traumatized, right? Like, she'd been through this thing. She's a bit of a drinking problem. She's a bit hard around the edges, but she's still strong. She's still kind. She still has a job. Like, when they got into the newer ones, and I don't hate the newer ones, but, like, where she's, like, a military, like, compound, and I just, it went so far that direction that I was, like, they lost all of the qualities of Laurie showed that were likable, really. Yeah. Um, oh, you know what? else i was influenced by by the way from h2o um the scene in uh sacrifice game in the cafeteria where there's people oh totally totally (laughs) (laughs) i thought of that when i saw it but i was like there's no way that that was where she got that (laughs) that's i was literally i showed the scene to ed and i was like i wanted to be like this that's great even even the like the kind of setup of the security guard in his booth and stuff had like a similar quality i mean it's not ll cool j but it's there's a vibe there of of the way that stuff happens in in h2o yeah i mean it's a great movie janet lee's in it and and i know that's such a lovely moment that's yeah. such a sweet moment. There's so many people who like kind of write off. They're like, ah, oh, it's like a Scream Halloween. And I was like, what better marriage? I love Scream and I love Halloween. Perfect. Give yeah. me those two sensibilities. It's okay. It's great. And also like the, what's the elevator? Dumb, is that called a dumbwaiter? Dumbwaiter, yeah. 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 That scare is right. so good. The only Ugh. problem is the all the messed up stuff with the mask, all the weird issues they had getting the mask, right? But I'm not one of those people that flips out about that shit. I'm like, whatever, it's... 
There's yeah. one shot though where they CG on his CGI'd his mask on. And it's like when you see it now, you're like, oh, that looks terrible. Like it's sci-fi movie of the week CGI. It's not good. I totally missed that. I have to go back. I'll send you a place. screenshot when we finish of okay. it. And you're, you're going to be like, oh my God. Okay, um, I've never it's, noticed it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit rough. Um, and then Joseph Gordon-Levitt at the very beginning. Another cool so thing. So good. Yeah, so, so good. good. We could uh, anyway. This is supposed to be about we your movie, and not about the hockey mask. Yeah, uh, we're supposed to be talking about your movie, and we're talking about H two O the whole time. Um, uh, <laughs> what was the f the very first movie that you remember seeing that just like scared the shit out of you, where you were just like, uh, that messed me up. I walked into a room when I was seven, where family members were watching The Exorcist, and I'm sorry, not The Exorcist, The Shining. I walked in, and it was the two girls holding hands shot yeah and yeah, i was like twins, yeah. oh my god i was like whatever that is <laughs> i never want to see it again i remember having that thought to myself and um and now the shining is one of my favorite movies of all time yeah. and yeah. i've seen it a thousand times so there's shining uh, elements in sacrifice game as well so that's interesting yeah yeah i love hallways so much yeah. i yeah. love like desolate desolate spaces it was definitely a movie that we were you know, chatting about that we had in mind when we were making it. Now, how did you first actually get into filmmaking? Like, what was your, what, did you go to film school? Did you start making shorts? How did you sort of get going? I was making shorts when I was in high school, um, just like with my friends. And then I went to, to college and I uh, studied writing for film and TV mm -hmm. at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia. Um, and then from there, while I was still in school, I started interning at a company called Fearnet, which uh, was a horror channel. That I remember, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Sony and Lionsgate and Comcast. So they used to be based in Philly, which is where I was in school. So I started interning there. And then right around the same time I graduated from school, they moved to L.A. So I, I moved out to L.A. also. And uh, I turned my internship into a marketing coordinator job, which was my first job out of college and I was there for four years and it was really awesome. I got to like discover horror as an industry because yeah. of course I was a fan, but I started to learn. Uh, I started to, to get to know different filmmakers working in the genre who'd come into the office and, and do meetings. And yeah. Then, what a great uh, job for that, for networking and, and such. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It was really awesome. And also the head of the company was uh, Peter Block, who had yeah. produced all the Saw movies and mm -hmm. um, and Frozen, which is a really scary movie. Adam Green's movie, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Adam Green. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a frightening movie. Cause I love that I'm movie. always afraid of like real-life situations and how you could be tortured in real-life situations. I remember, it, it's funny, I... I um, uh, sort of lost touch with him, but Adam and I were friendly for a while, and... Uh, because uh, I was working with Anchor Bay and Hatchet was was put out through Anchor Bay and so we became buddies at that time and I remember him telling me about this setup for Frozen and me being like, "Well, the fuck's that gonna work? That sounds so boring. Some people stuck on a chairlift for a whole movie. Like, what's that?" And then I remember when I saw it, I was like just melting into it. I was like, "This is so scary!" <laughs> like, yeah. He just it, I kudos to Adam because it's a premise that sounds impossible and it's such a strong. It's really more of a thriller, I guess, but it's such a strong movie. Yeah, it's so, sh and yeah, it's, it, the whole time you're just totally tense and you're like, what's going to happen? And then things happen and you're like, holy shit, okay, note to self, don't try to jump if you're stuck in a, 
in a ski lift. Yeah, and like the when the wolves show up, I was just like, <gasps> like yeah, you're like this is not. And the actors are so great. Like Kevin Zegers is great. Sean, it was Sean Ashmore in that one, right? I, I think so. I I'm terrible. I mix them up. Um, because they're twins, and I I can't remember which one it was. I think it was Sean. Um, I can't remember the name of the actress. She did a bunch, a couple other movies with Adam, but but they were all they were so great. It was such a great, yeah, such a strong, uh, fantastic cast. Um, and another like winter movie. I love a winter setting for a horror movie. I think it's the scariest oh, yeah. time of year because the desolation, right? That winter gives you that that feeling of uh, of just like there's you can't do it in the summer, spring, or fall. That when you show like a nice wide shot of a setting. And the wind's sweeping through the trees, and the trees are bare, and everything's blanketed in snow. Nothing, nothing feels lonelier than that to me. Oh yeah. Totally. On my first feature, I remember being like, you know, uh, wanting to shoot in the winter, and my producers were like, "Why are you doing that to yourself?" <laughs> like, I know it also makes production <laughs> really hard. But yeah, yeah, it does. Did you actually shoot your film in the winter, or was it no? We did not. We were aiming to, but the way things work out when the financing comes etc we ended up shooting in the spring and then um you know all the teams work together to make it feel like a winter wonderland you're much smarter was, than i was that was the term i kept using i was like it has to feel like a winter wonderland you're far smarter than me um because it was uh oh it was it was not fun because we were shooting in northern ontario which gets really oh freaking cold <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What month? Um, what month were you there shooting? February. Yeah, so I'm sure you had lots of snow. I'm sure Tons. it seemed very cold, and, and it looked beautiful, and it was great for what what we were trying to achieve. But it was a, not a pleasant experience for uh, for many of us. I I kind of embrace. You know, my crew and and my actors were great because they all kind of embraced it as part of the experience. And the fun thing about location shooting, because it was very remote, was like, you know, we would be up at night late, even though we should be sleepy because we had an early shooting day, drinking and chatting and sharing stories. And so it had that kind of vibe that you get when you location shoot. But um, but it was fucking cold. <laughs> like, it was so cold. It was so bloody cold. Um, Jen, do you mind if I smoke while we're chatting? Is that all right? Yeah, now? go for it. Um, go for it. I, I'm not in the same room with you, so yeah, I know. I just uh, I appreciate I, you're asking. Yeah, I... I I always feel a bit goofy asking because there's no secondhand smoke through a, a camera, but but you know some people like might just think it's distasteful or something. I don't know. No, I'm um, fine with it. Um, now you worked. We were talking a bit earlier about how you've worked with, you know, who's kind of to me a genre hero, Larry Fessenden. Um, how did you meet Larry, and how did you come to work with Larry? So while I was working at Fearnet, that's when um, uh, House of the Devil came out. Um, that's when uh, Bitter Feast, some other Glass Eye Picks movies were all coming out around that time. And being very well aware of what was coming out at that time um, because of my job, I, I started to become kind of obsessed with this company. I was like, who is this company that's making all these really So you weren't aware of Larry's work prior to that? I was not before Fearnet was not aware of his work. Okay. And then, because um, at that time I was, you know, just kind of getting whatever was given, whatever yeah. was coming to me in my suburban town. Yeah. So, uh, but after working at Fearnet, I became much more aware. And then I moved to New York um, in 2012 and, uh, and Glass Eye was like top 
of the list of places I wanted to work at. And um, actually, Peter Block did an introduction for me with Larry. And um, Larry and the producer who has produced all so many of their movies, Peter Polk, um, invited me to Larry's Christmas party. And I went to Larry's Christmas party. And um, I I was like, guys, I have a background in, in marketing for for horror movies and I want to do your marketing and essentially just pitch myself to them while they were really drunk. And I got a job. <laughs> it's the best time to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and then started working there right after new year's in 2013. So, um, and then once I was there, uh, then I slowly was like, actually, I want to learn how to produce, you know, I've always wanted to direct and, but they're so awesome. And they now are like, to Larry and Peter are like two of my best friends and we've made so many projects together at this point. Um, it's crazy to think that I started working at Glass Eye over 10 years ago, uh, but they're awesome. And they, I mean, working at Glass Eye Picks became my film. I went to film to school for screenwriting, but working at Glass Eye became my real film, like my so on the ground, learning yeah. how to make movies, film yeah, school. Right. I mean, Larry's such a... Um... When he came on the show, I think we scheduled like 90 minutes to talk because we were going to go through his whole filmography and he's done a lot yeah. of movies. And and Larry's a personal kind of hero director for me because I love the kind of uh, hands-on type of filmmaker he is. He's a no-bullshit type of director and, and he makes movies that are his movies. He doesn't compromise on that. Like I, I, I admire that about him. But then he came on and we ended up chatting for like two and a half hours nearly three hours that's awesome and Larry was just like so how are you gonna cut this down for uh, an interview Kevin it's uh this is like a biography now on me and I was like <laughs> I'm not gonna cut it down I'm just gonna release it in two parts um and uh uh but you know one of the things I kind of gleaned from getting to know Larry a bit now and then I got to hang out with him in, in fin at Fantasia in Montreal this past summer is like he's a very generous um guy with with what he knows and and insights and like just he's he's really lovely that way did you find in in your time working with larry that he was really giving in in that way oh completely yeah like absolutely um it's hard even to put into words because i mean he 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 gave me the knowledge and uh the understanding of how to be a filmmaker and he encouraged me a hundred percent completely and he took me under his wing and trusted me even though I had never produced anything he yeah. was like okay you want to produce 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 the first thing I produced was his ABCs of death short yeah uh for ABCs of death too I was like the main and only producer on that and he uh just you know fully trust me and taught me and same thing when I made the first feature I produced there was Most Beautiful Island um Anna Senzio's movie which uh went on to win the grand jury prize at South by Southwest we were nominated for an Indie Spirit Award um but I had never produced a feature before but right. him and also Peter were like look you got this and we're there for you and anything that you have questions about anything that comes up that you don't know how to face. Like we, this is your project, but we are here to help you if you, if you have trouble with anything and just having that support system 
is yeah that's so, so invaluable important. for when uh, you know instead of a young filmmaker learning the ropes to feel like you're safe to try things and and to fail you know because failing yes. is really important early in your career you have to make mistakes a hundred percent so having that like support structure and being able to learn how to make these movies over the course of like six years to the point where I felt, okay, now I'm ready to direct. And then I felt yeah. very safe getting to explore myself as a director in that framework as well. Um, it's just like, I'm, I'm so grateful. Well, let's talk about the sacrifice game. Um, so after producing multiple genre films for Last Eye Picks and working with Larry, you made your, uh, was it your first feature, The Ranger? Yes. Yeah, which also a genre film, fantastic, uh, such a blast, a really enjoyable, fun movie. Uh, I suggest anyone who hasn't seen it, seek it out and uh, strap in. It's, it's a great time. Uh, and then you did another feature after that, right? But not a genre film. No, I did uh, an episode of television. Um, oh, okay. Show, yes, right. A show called Pandora, which is like teens in space. Um, but the sacrifice game is my second feature. Okay. So here's the IMDb synopsis, and IMDb doesn't always get this quite right. So I'll say it, and then if you want to add to it or make any course corrections to IMDb summary, please do. Um, so here we go. It's bad enough that boarding school students Samantha and Clara can't go home for the holidays, but things take a deadly turn when a murderous gang arrives on their doorstep just in time for Christmas. Yep. That's the movie. That's how the movie starts. Then and bad things happen. I feel like it like it gives that synopsis thing of the tease but it's a very teasy synopsis they're not giving the cards are close to the chest with that one for sure um what was the genesis of the story and, and uh you co-wrote this with uh, uh sean redlitz is that is that my pronounce that yeah. correct well, yes so what was sort of the genesis of the story for you guys how did you how did you crack the story for this so when i first started working at glass eye in 2013 I wrote the first draft of this and I was just, you know, seeing the movies that they were making and I was like, oh, I want to, I want to, you know, make a film here. So I wrote the first draft. Then I realized as I was producing, I was like, as I was learning to produce, I was like, oh, wow, it's really, there's a lot, it takes a lot to make a movie. This is too big for my first feature. So I put it aside. Uh, in 2014, I focused my efforts on the Ranger and my thinking was, well, it can't cost that much to have a couple punks in the woods. And yeah, you know, the woods is a great place. location for your first horror movie, too, right? Because you exactly. can do a lot with it. You can make it look cool, but it's not very expensive to shoot in the woods. Exactly. So that became my focus. And then in 2018, after the Ranger premiered, then um, in thinking about what I wanted to do for my next feature... I found the first draft of this script and my um, boyfriend, who's now my husband, uh, we worked on it together throughout COVID. We dove into it. We were just, you know, we exchange ideas. We bounce ideas off of each other all the time. But with this specifically, he started suggesting things that really unlocked the story for me. And uh, then I was like, do you want to just like, here's 
here's the final draft document. You want to dive in and, and take a stab at some scenes? And and then we uh, ended up co-writing it together. And now we kind of fight about who came up with which lines. <laughs> I was like, no, I thought of that. And he's like, no, I thought of that. That was um, my line. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but that's good. When your minds are so melded, yeah. you can't remember who came up with what. It's. I think it's a good thing. That's awesome. Um, well, and so and at that stage, once you started to sort of get into the, you know, the real flesh of the, you know, you had the skeleton of the story you wanted to tell, but once you start getting into the nitty gritty of the story, did you have any specific sort of themes you knew were important to you to work into it? Any particular sort of undertones or things that for you as a filmmaker that you wanted to say with this film? Yes, I knew that I wanted it to be about friendship. I wanted it, I wanted to make a horror movie about friendship. I wanted it to be um, about loneliness. Uh, I feel each of the characters are battling loneliness in their own ways. Um, and it's, and loneliness is kind of driving each of them to act the way that they're acting um, and to do the things that they're doing. Um, I, I, as I mentioned, was uh, a lonely teenager. So I was definitely drawing from those experiences. I was also drawing from the experiences of when you first fall in friendship love, when you identify someone that you're like, I want to be that person's friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want yeah, to yeah. Best friends. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, those feelings when the two people are first starting to get to know each other, uh, I wanted to explore that. And then I wanted to, you know, in terms of horror tropes, I love, I love movies that do this and I love doing it in my writing when you can take horror tropes and twist them and play with them. Um, so I wanted to kind of mash together, uh, home invasion movies, uh, you know, like last house on the left with, um, uh, with supernatural mystery. Um, yeah. And, when I was watching the movie, you know, it's funny that you bring up Buffy because there's a Buffy, an understanding of loneliness and of the ache of feeling like you don't belong and finding in, in someone else kinship can alleviate that feeling. Do you think your your Buffy sort of um, inspirations were part of, of, of building that into the story? A thousand percent, like a thousand percent. Here's something I ha I don't think I've shared this anywhere ever. Ooh, ooh, do that! I love that! I love it. Yeah. When I was like 12 years old, I start. I discovered Buffy the Vampire Slayer role online role playing games, and I started. I don't. I didn't really understand the dice element or anything, but I understood that you could like be a character and play as a character, and and so I would go through. I think I played Cordelia and Buffy and Faith. At various times and I really loved um pretending to be these characters in these games and um and that was my first taste of screenwriting that was like my first oh that's so experience. interesting yeah huh. and that led me to you know want to write and that led me to wanting to go to film school for screenwriting um so Buffy has been like the sh the show has been such a voice in my head. It's been like part of my soul for so long. And I do think that a lot of my writing, like I can't help having that kind of tone be part of it. Yeah, I remember, uh, that's so funny that you would say that. So one of my first screenplays that actually started to get a little bit of traction and, and have producers look at it, uh, one of the producers 
who's who's a dear friend and has produced many of my films since she said to me what's with all the like ergo and all this like weird little dialogues i was like oh shit i'm totally ripping off the vernacular of buffy that's too much i gotta pull that (laughs) (laughs) you know because they spoke the dialogue was so specific on buffy joss whedon and and his writers said such a big way of, of the way the characters spoke that only really they could do and i and i unintentionally i was aping that but uh um but it's you know it's funny because I I met Joss Whedon before he had all the issues that he's come into in the last few years and but I met him at San Diego Comic Con not like in a in at the convention just at a hotel we were staying at the same hotel and I got to sit down and chat with him for a bit he's he was lovely and friendly and I was telling him about you know that I was a filmmaker and stuff and we talked about writing and like he was very um, generous with with and I was like. I don't usually get nervous meeting, you know, famous people, but that time I was, because if you're a Buffy fan, you know, Joss Whedon was the god of that universe. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, I don't know. Is that the? I think if you're a Buffy fan, it, it's still hard to, like, kind of... I hope that, that the, like, Joss isn't the things that some people say he is, but, you know, we, we won't get into that. Who knows? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's not... Yeah. Let's just... Um, the untarnished was- memories of Buffy. It is interesting, though, because being a teenager, not knowing anything about Hollywood, not knowing anything about the industry, about any of it, you just, I I just associated, like, Joss Whedon with Buffy, and, like, Joss Whedon was, like, this god, like, oh, my God, this, I I only knew his name, but, like, yeah. oh, my God, this guy that created Buffy, and uh, at some point along the way, I learned, like, don't fall in love with idols like no it's true idols especially and certainly obviously there's there were so many people so many writers so many people that went into making Buffy what Buffy is yes um and I think you know it is important that people within the industry fans especially um people outside of the industry like deeply understand even though there's a name attached to a thing there's so many people that go into making yeah. these things. There's yeah. so many collaborators. It's a total collaborative effort to bring a movie or a TV series to life. I think especially in television where there's, you know, like, cause films can be sort of more so than TV can be sort of auteured and, and there's still a lot of collaboration of course, but, but there is a more singular vision often in a film, but not really on television. TV is a showrunner and these things, but you know, there's a staff of writers and, there's, it's a very different, uh, you know, and really in TV, you know, the writers are kind of the powerhouse. The directors come in and they do an episode or two or whatever, and then they go and another one comes in and it's really a writer's medium. Um, That's for sure. So you're right. And it's, you know, I think it's always challenging for people when, when someone that you look up to or that you uh, even idolize artistically or whatever it is, um, you know, then you hear some bad thing about their personal life and, and it can be difficult, I think, to separate the person from the work. And for me, it's always like, well, you can still enjoy Buffy and how brilliant and influential it is without bringing into that equation whatever we've heard in the last couple of years about, uh, you know, Joss's behavior or whatever. That can, you know, it gets a little more challenging when you get people like Roman Polanski where you're like, oh, but he committed a terrible crime. Like, <laughs> but, but it's even that's, you know, like for me, if this isn't too personal a question, if it is, you don't have to answer it. You know, I love the movie Chinatown. It's one of my favorite movies. I think it's a masterpiece. But 
Roman Polanski is someone I have a great deal of difficulty with, and I kind of have to make myself forget it to still enjoy the movie. Is there a filmmaker or a film that, that you love that where you where you have a problematic relationship with the creator or the filmmaker? Yeah, I would say Polanski as well. Yeah. Like I love Chinatown. I love Rosemary's Baby. I love the Tenant. I mean, I love those movies, but I also have not sought out anything after that. I have never watched any of his new movies. I yeah. I uh yeah, it's hard. I think it's something we're all struggling with in different ways. Um, yeah. Separating the art from the artist. And also, again, keeping in mind, a lot of people went into making those movies, not not just them, even though their name is the one we associate it with. Yeah, for sure. Um, so how did you pitch this movie and, and, and how did the financing come together to get to get the film off the ground? Um, well, my, I shared the script with, uh, my friend Heather Buckley, who was a producer on The Ranger, and she, um, knew two producers in Montreal and thought it would be great for them, uh, Phil Kalen and Albert Malamed, and they read it and they loved it, and, uh, we went to Montreal and we went The film was shot in Montreal, sorry to interrupt, the film was shot in Montreal, right? Yeah, and it was, we were shot right outside Montreal, so they brought, they brought us to this amazing place oka abbey and i fell in love with it and i was like yes there's just magic here i want to make this movie here and um and so uh phil and albert from there really put the the movie together uh i certainly had a relationship with shutter um from the ranger and uh so shutter came on board red sea media came on board as our sales agent our international sales agent um and uh and we together got the movie going in in montreal in last spring so in uh may we were shooting in may june 2022 did you have like a often when you're pitching movies or trying to get movies financed they tell you to come up with uh it's this meets this did you have one of those for this movie um i forget what i was what i was calling it um so I, I don't I don't remember. <laughs> I, I probably did, but I don't remember. You were like, it's the um, shining. Me- it's the shining meets. Uh, what was the other one we were talking about? The shining meets uh, uh, H2O. There you go. That's that's what. It yeah, is. yeah, yeah. I, I know I said <laughs> it was like the location of the shining with like the gang from near dark, like the energy of the gang from near dark. Oh, I love that girls. movie. Oh, my God. I love that. movie. <laughs> and the boarding school girls of like heavenly creatures. Um. So usually when I do comps, I, I do like, instead of just overall this meets that, I'm like, it's this, the setting of this with the characters of this. Yeah, yeah. Mashing together in that way. Yeah, it, it's that that whole like, this meets this thing. I, like I remember being at AFM with a film and you have to have that kind of in your back pocket if, for an elevator pitch or whatever. And I hated it because I was like, it, the movie was like, that I was pitching was sort of like, it was about a serial killer and it, but, it, but it wasn't like a, a procedural and it was, it was really a movie that was about, um, ostensibly it was about, about the process of coming out of the closet using, um, a, a, something that's based on a true story. It was very involved how we got to the script that we had, but the sales agent was like, you got to come with a, this meets this. And I was like, but it's, it hems it in so much that it's not what, it, like, I couldn't figure out how to do that. And it ended up with them being like, say it's, um, why don't you just say it's Dexter meets Brokeback Mountain? I was like, because it's not that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, That's so funny. There's, yeah, um, it drove me nuts. 
We did create a lookbook, and that was also, you know, part of. Our, I love making lookbooks for films, though. Yeah, like it. A lookbook is it just helpful to sell a film? It can be really helpful for you as the filmmaker to start making discoveries and you know, sort of working 100%. things through. Yeah. Um. As I mentioned earlier, and I'll reinstate now. I love Christmas horror. Uh, I'm a, I'm gonna go ahead and guess that you do too. Um, I do. Why did you decide to set this movie over Christmas time? Part of it was with the setup of I want all the people at the boarding school to leave and I wanted to just I wanted to be a home invasion movie with the last with the people that are left over at the boarding school and also in there thematically is so much about like, you know, you should be spending Christmas with your family. But what you know, what is family when you don't feel like you're connected to those people? Uh, you know, our characters ultimately have to create a chosen family um and obviously christmas and family are very tied uh in in our minds and um and plus i think in terms of horror movies i think horror can be very creepy when you're playing with childlike imagery when you think about movies like the babadook or it you know those are chi it's childhood imagery that's then twisted for horror and christmas is all about our you know, nostalgia, childhood, and, yeah, nostalgia yeah, yeah. childhood memories so i i i think it's fun when you can take that kind of thing and and twist it into this dark uh fun thing um and yeah and i love i really love like black christmas and the movie set in the early 70s so that black christmas was um an influence for sure um and so all these things started to come together and made it make sense to be set on Christmas. And now, why did you decide to make it a, a period film? What, what went into that decision? Obviously, I, I mean, was, the helpful thing is you're getting rid of cell phones and all that shit, but... Um. Well, yeah, of course. Um, I, I'm really excited from an aesthetic perspective when I get to, like, explore a period. So it was really fun... And attractive for me as a filmmaker to get to be like, okay, well, what would these costumes be? To get to work with our costume designer, Stella Creary, on like, what would these costumes look like? To uh, same thing with props and set dressing and everything. And something, you know, we we mentioned the Ranger earlier, and I I took the same approach with Sacrifice Game. When you're making an indie movie, sometimes it's hard. You know, you hear period and then people get scared. Like that's going to yeah. cost a lot of money. With period, the Ranger, because the period cars and all the things that had to add up when you're doing a period piece. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. With the Ranger, I discovered well, most of our setting is the woods, and we're expressing the '80s through um, through their costumes right. and through the props. And so I took the same approach with this, where the school, you know, the the, the building was actually probably built in the 1800s. The school has been there for so long. We're expressing the 70s period through costumes, props, set dressing. And and that's all really fun for me. I like that. I, I also felt like, and you can tell me if I'm way off base with this, but I also felt like because there's a certain um, cult vibe to the villains, that era had a lot of that too, you know, Manson and, and, and all that stuff around that time that went, went down. It feels like that era had a cult fear going through it that that matched the tone of, of, of the particular group of baddies you have in this film. Did I Definitely. say baddies? That was weird. You anyway. did. That feels like, yeah, 
that feels like a word that you would use when talking about Buffy characters. Too. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> I don't know but yeah, uh, no, that was that was definitely a reason to set it in the early seventies. Also, wanted to explore this time period where, like, you know, the promise of of um, flower child culture was starting to sour. Um, I was uh, I read Helter Skelter when I was you know, 15 years old and it's haunted me, um, as it has many people. And also really interesting just to think about how, like, you know, um, with the Manson murders, that's something that happened, you know, over 50 years ago. And it's, we still, you know, pop culture or culture is actively still creating stories about it. Mm -hmm. Um, myself included in terms of it being an influence. Um, it's something that just penetrated like the public consciousness so much that yeah. uh, so in thinking about all of this, it started to make sense. And then just our movie influences, you know, Last House on the Left, Suspiria, um, Black Christmas. There's a really cool movie that came out in 1971 that's French called Don't Deliver Us from Evil about um, boarding school girls who are up to no good. So that felt like a spiritual ancestor to this movie so um all these things just started to just just to make it feel like it should be set in the early 70s and it's you know it's a really cool thing in the film that the film starts off i don't think you can tell me if this is too spoilery i don't think it is the film starts off feeling like it's going to be sort of a cult horror movie you know about about a cult and then it takes a very sharp turn into a very different direction um did you have like any uh, uh was that how do i want to say this was that something for you where you're like i i'm you know deliberately kind of playing a bait and switch on the audience here i want them to think they know what they're getting with this movie but then it's going to be something else altogether yeah in in many ways exactly as you say it starts off in this like christmas setting uh following these characters in this in this culty kind of scene then we go to the school and we're with the girls and we're learning about them. And that and that stuff at the school immediately takes on a, the Black Christmas vibe because of, you know, the, the, you know, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and I, it, it was, it was, I wanted it to consistently feel like you didn't quite know where the movie was going, but ultimately I hope it all feels intentional at the end. It does. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the film has a terrific cast. Uh, like I, I, I thought every bit of casting was dead on, and 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 casting, of course, is you know I think it it's like an old adage that if you get your casting right, you've done like a huge chunk of the work. Um, now I want to make sure I pronounce his name. Is it Mana Masood? Mina. Mina. Okay. So Mina Masood, Olivia Scott Welch, Chloe Levine, Madison Baines, Georgia Aiken, Aiken, Aiken. Akin. Akin. Just to name a few, there's a whole bunch of other great actors. What was sort of the casting process like? Now, now I believe, was it Chloe you had worked with on The Ranger, right? Yeah, so Chloe um, played Chelsea in The Ranger, and she became one of my best friends out of uh, that experience. So when we were writing Sacrifice Game, I had her in mind for Rose the whole time. Um, and I was so delighted when she read the script, and she was... Uh, into the character and she wanted to come on board and play that role. Um, and what's really cool about that is because we already had our language. It was really easy to just like sink into yeah. that. 
that that shorthand you have with someone that you've worked with can be such a, a, a wonderful thing when you're on set yeah yeah and then um olivia scott welsh um uh was one of the first people to come on and uh we had i just seen her in fear street and i uh was such a fan and also i uh loved her in the amazon tv series panic Mm -hmm. and i was like oh it'd be so cool to like you know watch her play this like sexy cool cult girl um and also yeah she's she's so awesome um so lovely on set like she she like writes up she comes on and her energy is just like everyone the crazy thing is my when my husband and i were watching it with chloe's performance um my husband really gravitated everybody's great but he really gravitated to her performance and i said and and i had thoughts as to why i said but he's like the way she's doing fear and like crying but seems like someone who has strength and so she's she's keeping all of those at play in a way that feels real and grounded and i said it's kind of an old thing they say to actors that 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 you know the difference between good acting and bad acting when you're crying is like shitty acting with crying is like oh but but most people when they're crying try to hold it in and chloe has these like beautiful moments where you can see that she's terrified or heartbroken but she's trying to hold herself together. And I just think it's such a sensational performance the way she managed to to sort of juggle all of that. Yeah. Uh, Chloe's amazing. She really is. Uh, and also, like, you know, felt that way about her holding these conflicting emotions on the Ranger. So really exciting to get to discover. She was sort of a no-brainer well. for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um... So Olivia came on, and then Mina Masood came on. Mina plays Aladdin. Um, and he's very I, far from Aladdin here. Very exactly. fucking far. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and that was part of, you know, in our first conversation, I was like, you're so charming. Let's take that charm and twist it and make it really yeah. evil. And he make like, it dangerous. Yeah. It. yeah. Um, and um, uh, Gus Kenworthy plays jimmy and gus is uh in american horror story which is um love american horror story loved his season um it was the 80s camp season and uh and he's also an olympic skiing medalist uh which is awesome and incredible he's also like a become pretty much like a huge gay icon he's like he's a gay icon yeah he is (laughs) i thought that was such a fun piece of casting for me as a gay person because you know i am well aware of who he is he's a he's a really good actor a sexy guy and he comes in the movie playing none of of those qualities that gus has as a person yeah he's very buttoned down and kind of you know (laughs) yeah i felt that he um, I, first of all, I, I liked, I, 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 you know, how many straight actors have played gay roles? I think it's cool that, you know, he's playing this straight role, not to get into spoilers or specifics, but in a, in a, a situation that feels like their relationship is a little unsteady. Yeah. Um, and I love that he looks like Prince Charming. He really does. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It was funny because my husband pointed out to me, he's like, did they put him, you think, in those bulky sweaters so we wouldn't know how jacked he is? <laughs> I was like, probably, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, and he's oh, great. There was, in- a, there was a really fun moment, though, when we were exploring facial hair for him. 
because at first he had like a very big the hair people gave him a very big mustache and i was like is that is that the vibe or no or maybe it's just the side yeah um ultimately we went with just the side yeah yeah (laughs) a mustache can be um a lot (laughs) yeah and he's great in the movie i loved him on american horror he was a lot of fun in that but but it was great to see him get to do something really different here and and kind of really step outside of like what i think people would expect him to be doing in the movie he's not like the eye candy he's doing something very different than that um which is awesome um and then we uh, we did auditions for a lot of these characters. So Georgia Aiken, Georgia Aiken, who plays Clara, um, we met her through auditions. Powerhouse, she she's great. Yeah. 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 And uh, and Laurent and Derek and Derek, who plays Grant, is also Love Sausage in The Boys. Oh, who's I'm, I I can't remember his name now. Who the he's the taller, thinner, sort of one of the bad guys. Yeah, Laurent Petra, who plays He's Doug. so funny. Like, there's something about his deliveries of lines in this in your movie, like, that I'm not even sure if they were meant to be funny, but something about he, the way he, he does it, just, uh, he's such a fun person to watch. There's just certain yeah. actors I find that, like, when they're put in the right role, you just, they, they, they pop for some reason, and, and he really just stood out to me in so many scenes. He was, he's, he's kind of the closest thing to, to sort of, He's not comic relief, but he's the closest thing to it. He also becomes, and this wasn't necessarily what we thought when we wrote it, but um, thanks to Laurent, he kind of becomes the audience's perspective because he's kind of speaking for the audience. Well, there's and, even a hint of sort of tragedy to his fate in the movie that, that's yeah. sort of, you know, that, that doesn't, you don't really see coming. Um, yeah. Um, and, and, um, Mina? 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 I keep getting his name wrong. Fuck. Mina? Mina, yeah. I mean, he plays a particularly nasty bastard in this movie, but he's also charismatic as hell. Um, yeah. Did you did you sort of base that on, you know, the sort of some of the archetypes of what a cult leader type person is, is meant to be like? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, how this kind of personality can convince people to do things. And, yeah. you know, you think you're part of this group of friends uh and that you've been allowed into the group and then before you know it you're murdering people well and it's interesting when you watch him in the movie too because as i said he's incredibly charismatic and and um but he he also of course he's extremely dangerous person and and completely psychopathic he's a total sociopath um like he does things in the movie where you're like he didn't have to do that he did it just because he (laughs) wanted to Um, there's something particularly uncomfortable about being in the company of a character like that in the film i think where we're kind of all bets are off they'll just do whatever hits you know suits their fancy um kind of makes them extra unpredictable and scary um, yeah. and did you guys sort of work on that uh in as a director and actor of saying saying you know is there a is there a too far with this character or, or like how unhinged can he be because he's he's probably the biggest in terms of uh, he it's a it's a bigger performance than many of the other actors get to do um and and you could get too big you know with, with that sort of character and he he occasionally goes right up to that line but always stops just in time so i just wondered yeah. how you guys sort of found that space together yeah well first of all like you know talking about jude's backstory um 
with his father and there's reference to it in the movie about his father was a preacher so he's 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 i think the character is overcompensating yeah. for something in his past um but also yeah he starts in a really evil place and he gets but he has an arc and he gets to um a different evil place um, <laughs> yeah this isn't this and... isn't the story of his of his redemption yeah, yeah. <laughs> no not this one <laughs> Um, and, uh, yeah, working that out with Mina was, uh, really fun. Also, Mina, by the way, is incredible at turning it on and turning it off. You know, we have some very violent scenes. We have a lot of stunts and whatnot. And Mina, you know, you call cut and he's like, are you okay? He's making sure everybody's okay. He totally can pop out of it. Um, so yeah, and then just finding the nuances with him from where he starts to where he ends up. Now, I won't get into specifics because this could get a little tricky, but there's a particular character who has to go into the direction of playing a particularly evil persona. Uh, again, a, the type of character that can get too big. So when you were figuring out that character, what was sort of, did you kind of create a list of, you know, or not necessarily a list, but but a notion of like, okay, this is this is how we'll create this character and how we'll make sure it doesn't get caricature-y or become too tropey. It's kind of it's working a lot with the actors, you know, and it's it's talking about each of the and I mean this goes for everybody, it's talking about each of the characters in terms of objective and keeping it all very human. What is the human objective what do you want and with that character specifically it was working with the actor to um to find human relatable things that that the actor might want in real life so you could easily just you know let's pretend we're actually talking about you wanting this instead of what's in the movie right um plus this is spoilery so maybe it doesn't end up in the final version of this. <laughs> but, but to me, what was always really, what was always a draw for this story and always something I wanted to explore were the similarities of being a demon and being a teenage girl and how when you're a teenager and you're stuck in uh, school, it feels like you'll never get out of there. You'll be there forever. Um, four years of high school literally feels like forever when you're 14 years old uh it feels like an eternity so playing on at every level uh, from the writing of a script to the shooting to editing like working with the actors at every level it was it was really um important to me to explore that angst and the and the parallel uh between real life and this fantasy world now um you know when you when you're a a filmmaker or, you know, I guess this applies to anyone who works in, in show business and in creative industry and the creative arts. Um, you know, people have a tendency to kind of not just need to categorize films, but also filmmakers, the kinds of films, you know, and there was a few reviews I, I that I read for this movie that, that honed in on, you know, one movie, one critic who called it a feminist horror film. And I was like, curious what your response is to like, do you embrace things like that? Or are you like, not sure? Like, what's your reaction to hearing things like that? Um, interestingly, literally yesterday, uh, Katie Reif 
her letterbox just wrote this article and she interviewed me and uh, several other uh, filmmakers about the women in horror label, which I think is part of what you're uh, yes. speaking to. Um, and sorry, the United States just did like a national test where they decided to. I heard about system. that. What's that all yeah. about? So my phone just, I don't really know, but I knew my phone was going to freak out at some yeah. point in the next yeah. days. <laughs> um, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm getting back on track. So Katie Reif uh, for Letterboxd just did this article where she interviewed myself and several other filmmakers about the women in horror label. And, um, and what I said in the article, which uh, I still, like, I'm, I'm fine. Like, call, definitely, I'm, I'm proud. Uh, if people are calling this a feminist horror movie, I'm very proud of that. I think the word feminist is a good word. And, uh, and if you're not feminist, then you're sexist. And, you know, it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and in terms of the women in horror label, like, I look forward to the day when people just call me a filmmaker and don't call me a female filmmaker. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in the meantime, it's, uh, it's important to shine light on these kinds of things to make change happen. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, for me myself as a, as a filmmaker and I've had people express to me, well, to you as a, as a gay filmmaker and, you know, or, and, and it's funny because I have such a mixed reaction to it. I'm like, you know, it's true. Um, and, uh, and I think it's important. I think, um, inclusiveness is crucial at the time we're at right now that, that, and, and that, that people are taking notice finally is really important. But I also, it, what concerns you about it sometimes, at least as it pertains to my work and sometimes to the work of other gay filmmakers that, that I know have, I've talked to about this is that sometimes I think it's also ghettoizing someone's work. And suggesting that 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 it's only for a certain audience, because yeah. to me, like when I make a film, if the central character says a gay character, like the concept to me is not to say that only gay people are to watch this movie, and and so, you know, it's it's a double edged sword, and that I I I I'm though I'm a proud gay man, and I I have uh, and I can I intend to continue creating work with gay characters in in important central roles. Um, but I don't ever set out to make a movie where I'm like, it's just for these people. Cause I think as a filmmaker, that's you're kind of missing the relationship you can have with an audience when you start doing that. Um, And movies are so important because, you know, like we were saying before, how movies influenced ourselves, how they, you know, uh, allowed us to create our identities and, um, and, and relate with characters and fi- help figure out ourselves. Like representation is so important in these movies. And so I, but I, I do feel like when the, when these terms are used and they end up ghettoizing mm-hmm. the, the movie, then it becomes like, uh, it, it's, it's actually a marketing thing. It's really yeah. how it's talked about in marketing and promotion you could have the exact same movie and um and just the way you 
people talk about it can change audiences perception of whether or not they should see it. Like I always, you know, I love Brokeback Mountain. I think it's a beautiful, important film. And uh, I really hated it. And to this day, hate it when people would say, oh, the gay cowboy movie. And I was like, if that's all you took from that movie, you don't have feelings and you suck. <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? And I, I think it's that kind of ghettoization that to me, for some people, is a way to dismiss something that they're not comfortable with or that they think is pushing in it, you know, it, it, and it, it, without getting super political with you, but like, you know, I remember when like the term woke started and it initially, like when I was hearing it used, it was mostly by people who were talking about being aware and sensitive to other people. And now it's like a fucking curse word to some people like, oh, well, it's so because, woke. That's because um, parts of our country have actively taken it and tried to demonize it and turn people against it. And then they could just use that if they make it negative then they can just use that as a label for their own, you know, to get people behind them and their own political bullshit. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, too, because like I've interviewed, I don't know, 60 something filmmakers, actors for this podcast. Um, I've had lots of women on, but you're the first female director I've had on the show not for lack of trying. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me, you know, when you get into talking about sort of, um, you know, the media, then, then can, can, there's a hook there that can, and, and, and to me, I'm like, I kind of have to praise you for taking on the responsibility of like, uh, of knowing that, that it's there and working with it, but being aware of it and knowing that it, it can be a double-edged sword, like good for you for, for sort of, you know, I think it's tough as a filmmaker when just being who you are becomes something that has to become part of your story about your work. And sometimes that's not easy to do. Yeah. And I I wonder, like, do you think, you know, say for your next film, um, are these sorts of themes, the friendships among women, the the the, the sense of of sort of um, finding yourself through finding you know, the love that two people can have in a friendship. I'm, I'm talking about friendship love. Um, you know, I think that's at the core of this movie. Um, is that something that you want to continue to explore in your work, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And um, to share with you, because we're becoming great friends, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm Pan. And uh, so, yes, this movie, you could read it as friendship you could read it as the beginnings of a of a you know budding teen romance. romance yeah um, i kind of read that into it so so I, yeah I, okay because honestly for me like the love i've felt for some of my female friends that i have fallen into best friendship with is the same it feels the same as you know the uh the boyfriends that I've yeah that I've met as well. So uh, for me, it's all the same feeling. It's all the same yeah. kind of love. And I hope that when people watch the movie, they they can feel that it's not one or the other. That it that it is open. And I want everybody to be able to to feel those feelings. It's not one or the other. Well, I think one of the the really beautiful things about this film and you know because it is it is scary and it is fun and it is uh it's moments steeped in dread and has all those wonderful things we want from a horror movie 
but it also has a heart and it also has a thing that that i really responded to which is it has an ambiguity there's not you didn't give answers to who everyone is why they do everything they do we're watching human beings working through their human stuff and that's not always easy and usually not and and i think in the hands of a lesser filmmaker trying to answer those things uh would have been a mistake um so I'm I'm curious if for you, like you know, f looking at this this sort of panoply of different types of characters and 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 the way that they relate to each other and the situation they're in, like, um, was it something f that you think for you as a writer that is in is integral to to how you like to write? That is to say, ambiguity is important. You don't want to answer every single question. Definitely, for sure, and it's also like, what is. You know, it's obviously when you're writing a movie, when you're making a movie, you're you're working on at various layers. There's various layers that you're working at. So uh, what's important to know in the world of this movie from page one to, you know, page 100? And then at the same time, how can you make these characters feel lived and real and that they their lives ex extend beyond the pages and beyond the runtime of the movie and the, you know, these, the future that these characters have, where they're coming from. And part of that, at least I'll talk about it in terms of acting is when I like, when I work with actors, I like to identify, um, like what is the core thing driving the actor? I'm sorry, the core thing driving the character, what was driving them before the movie started? What will, be driving them when they leave like what do they want in life what is that thing and if you can distill that down uh to to a, a very specific thing it actually that's part of the 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 trick of working with actors i think that if you can like make your language very clear and simple this is what they want in life for instance in the sacrifice game Maisie is looking for closure before the movie started, she was looking for closure. Throughout the movie, she's looking for closure. And now that takes on different forms, uh, you know, based on the interaction she's having with the different characters, um, based on where she starts, where she thinks she and this group have all the power. And obviously they're going to, um, you know, find this thing that she's, that she's searching for. And then, you know, later on in the movie... Uh, she realizes she has to kind of go at it her own on her own but no matter what before the movie started she was looking for closure so uh that's really important to me and then so some of these things are important to have as text and some of these things can just be subtext and through subtext you're you're creating the characters in her lives and that um that shows up in the frame because the act, the actors are acting those things. So that's going to show up when you have a close up on someone, just seeing it through their eyes, you're going to be able to, to express these moments. You know, some films are, are plot and story driven and, and some, and some films are character driven. And, and I think um, different writers have different opinions about how that should be or shouldn't be. Do you, do you think that this movie is, plot-driven or character-driven, or do you think the symbiosis of those two things is what you strive for? The goal is the symbiosis. So I hope when, when people watch it, they feel both of those things. For me, this is usually how I work. For me, it starts with the concept, the overall concept, 
and then I start to fill it in with like the aesthetic and the world and then the characters but then in going in in the actually actual writing of it uh I want to make those two elements characters and plot feel as fluid as possible and uh as motivated as possible and so it be it really becomes one like holistic experience the film ends in a way that leaves the possibility for more story with with some of these characters is this the kind of film you'd be interested in continuing with any of these characters down or do you think you said what you needed to say with these particular characters I love this world and I love these characters and I would love to keep um, playing in this universe. You got to see the film uh, with an audience at some festivals. What was that experience like? What were the audience reactions to this, to this film? It was, it's been incredible. Uh, We world premiered at Fantasia, which was awesome because we shot in Montreal. So we had so many people that had worked on the movie in the audience and you could just really feel, um, you know, the joy, getting to share it with them first was so, so wonderful. And you could just really feel the excitement and joy of just getting to see this thing we all had worked so hard on. Yeah. Just getting to see the finished product. Um, and the movie got a standing ovation. And then we had a dope late night Christmas in July party where we all uh, partied in a mansion till till four in the morning. Um, so that was a great world premiere for the movie. And then um, we we had our international premiere at Fright Fest, where we were the closing night film. And Fright Fest is awesome and really fun. And we were able to go there and be part of it. Um, and then we just had our U.S. premiere at Fantastic Fest, um, which was awesome. We played um, two sold at midnight shows. And then later in the week, um, which I couldn't attend, we, had, we played a couple more. We did a couple more screenings. Um, and the Fantastic Fest audience is awesome as well. And Fantastic Fest is a crazy festival and we had we had a great time. And we're gonna be playing more festivals, uh many festivals all around the world, and um and I'll be able to go to a couple of them. So when you think back on the sort of inception through the production now that the film is finished seeing it with an audience and just the whole experience of making and then now putting out the sacrifice game what do you think in maybe let's say 10 years will be the things you remember the most about making this film oh wow i would say working with this incredible cast um i love them all so much um i'll also add that it's georgia atkins first feature we have an introducing card for her in the beginning, and I know she's going to be doing amazing things. So I can't wait to see, you know, which what she does. Um, and then just getting, you know, the team was so great. Working in Montreal, working with the Quebec crew there. Um, loved all my department heads. Loved like Alexander Boussier, who was a DP. He and uh, Pierre Plant, who was our AD. Like, what an incredible team um uh getting to work with everybody also in post-production arthur tarnowski and Mathieu berube uh, were the editors getting to work with both of them mario savenier was our composer um matt sherman was our sound designer really just everybody poured so much love into the movie and i i talked about this before like as a director sometimes i feel like i'm holding the film's hand 
and like the film is my buddy and we're going from like um phase to phase and along the way everybody at that phase is pouring their love and passion into the movie and it's like okay now you know first stop is pre-production and everyone's pouring their love into it and then production and it's like okay now we're gonna go you know into the mix session and I'm like holding the film's hand like he's my my little buddy guy <laughs> um <laughs> and and that's what I kind of feel like you know directing directing is uh and you're just kind of your your my job is overseeing the tone working with everybody uh to make sure we're all making the same movie um but so so many people's love went into this movie and i'm it was such a great experience i think it's interesting to note that i think at the holidays everybody has sort of their favorite at least for horror fans of course maybe this isn't for everybody. some people just have it's a wonderful life on and and they're wonderful normal people but for for us uh Buffy type fans, <laughs> Black Christmas fans, it becomes a thing at Christmas time or, or you know, of, of queuing up. These are the Halloween or sorry, the uh, Christmas horror movies I'm going to hit up this year. Um, and I, I have a, a, an inkling that this movie will get added to, to many people's list. That must be kind of fun for you and exciting to think that you might become your film might become a tradition for some people. If you know, that's that would be amazing. Um, all I can do is hope that people dig it and connect with it and um and they they want to revisit it every year that's just beyond love that now what are some of your favorite christmas horror movies don't overthink it just list off 10 fast like oh my god 10 like, yeah 10 I, I would say i don't have 10 favorites that i can list i would say black christmas um 70s version um krampus because you're reminding me with your shirt and your poster i love krampus um, you may have noticed that yeah <laughs> yeah I, I have noticed and on the note of krampus uh really really love trick-or-treat deeply uh which is halloween michael doherty's a fucking genius filmmaker i adore everything yeah. he does yeah yeah um i really enjoyed violent night yeah um i think it came out last year um that Silent was the Night. one with uh uh david harbour yeah yeah okay uh silent night deadly night um wait there was a there was a movie i saw maybe was this was it a sequel or or the third movie of the silent night deadly night series of like that was like there's like five of them the robot that's oh that's the fifth one and it's awesome <laughs> Okay, yeah, that I saw that. Maybe the one with last Mickey year. Rooney, where he had, where he's making all the toys. The yeah. yeah, 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 that one. Yeah, I love that. Um, one. I would say those are those are some. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm going to throw a few at you. Tell me if okay. like, how you feel about them. Gremlins. Okay. Oh yeah, of course. That's like of course. Can't, can't classic. Yeah, have you ever seen Christmas Evil? I um, what happens in Christmas Evil? It's this guy who thinks he's actually Santa Claus and he goes a bit nuts and Yes, I had. Vastly underrated Christmas movie, I think. I probably saw it a decade ago. Uh now debate will rage whether it's a Halloween and Christmas movie, but uh Nightmare Before Christmas. Of course, a thousand percent. And I think it's both. Yeah, it is both. It's weird that that, that is a debate because it's definitely both. Um 
Let me think. I know more than this too. We did Silent Deadly Night. Uh, oh, uh, did you see uh, the remake of Black Christmas? Either I saw the one. I haven't seen the one that's like from 2006, but I saw the one that came out. Like, the Blumhouse in one. 2019. Yes. That, that no one, one likes. <laughs> I I applaud the efforts and um, and I think it's fun and it captures the you know the college university uh sorority uh tone and aesthetic you know i think would have done that movie a favor if it wasn't called black christmas yeah it kind of felt like its own its own story i do think when you you know it's it's hard doing remakes sometimes yeah. i think because people have so much love and affection for the original thing and they just are unwilling to to look at the at a movie on its own terms do you see Christmas as being a, a scary time as well as all the other things that it is? Um, oh, oh, what's the movie with with Santa and it's like takes place in um uh, uh what is it? And it's like there's all these like scary Santas, all these scary like gremlin Santas. I saw it a long time ago. Not gremlins, Oh, Rare like, Exports. Yeah, Rare Exports. Brilliant. That's, yeah. Oh, that's and what? Uh, this is the one I was getting. There's one that William Shatner was in where he plays like a DJ and it's all different Christmas scary stories and Krampus is in it. It's really good. Um, Christmas Horror that. Story. It's called Christmas Horror Story. Have you seen it? I've not seen it and now it's on my list. Oh, it's so good. It's really good. Yeah, you're going to enjoy it. It's fantastic. Um, What were we saying just before that? Well, I was saying it's it's like to me it's so funny because Christmas I love Christmas I'm like I, I Halloween and Christmas are my two favorite times of the year and I like that they're pretty close together though it makes the rest of the year like a really long drag for me to get to back to them but um like I'm one of those people that hates the summer <laughs> um but uh Christmas which is the time a lot of people think of as you know it's family it's traditions it's Christmas carols it's Bing Crosby it's all these things but but I always think they're they're right below the surface there there is something sinister around the house some of those Christmas carols are eerie and something about Santa this guy who comes into your house and like all of that is just under the surface do you think do you look at Christmas that way I was talking to somebody and I apologize because I can't remember who it was. I've had so many conversations in the past couple of weeks, but somebody said like Christmas is like a home invasion that we actually want. It's like a celebration yeah. of a home invasion that we actually want. You leave cookies out for the home invader and he gives you presents. Yeah. It's fucking weird. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is pretty spooky. Um, I'll say I'm Jewish. And um, so I didn't get to celebrate Christmas when I was growing up. Uh, and I um, was sad about that because I believed in Santa Claus and I would stay awake every Christmas Eve as like late as I could and look out the window at the house across the street from mine and wait for Santa to land on their roof. And I always fell asleep at some point in the night, but it was so sad. And I think because of <laughs> those, because of the way, because of, I was brought up that way, um, I kind of associate a lot of sadness and loneliness around Christmas. Yeah, that's like, the funny thing about Christmas, right? Is for some people who have like big families and they all get together. It's but for people who don't have that, it can be a very lonely, very. It can compound all of that around the holidays. So it it is tricky that way. And I think one of the things I think I love about Christmas horror and Christmas in general is that even at the age I'm at now, which is in my early forties, there's still 
Christmas time has still has a little bit of magic around it for me. There's still yeah. something about Christmas that every year it still brings that out of me. And and I and I I think I think that's you know I don't even think Halloween does that for me anymore. I just love all the the Halloween still for me. But like I don't have kids, and and Halloween to me is so much more fun with children because they they embrace everything that is halloween and the trick-or-treating we don't even have trick-or-treaters where i live so it's like oh no yeah it's kind of a bummer and i of course i will always love halloween but christmas is like yeah i love them there's a mysticism around christmas that uh you know think of like your parents send you off trick-or-treating and stuff when, when you're a kid but they don't tell you that witches and goblins are real like none of that you're not told that that Christmas, you're like told that this guy is real and these reindeer are real and that all like you're told these things, these lies, and you believe them as a child. And there's something crazy and amazing about that. But I will say that with Halloween, you're told like, don't go to that house down the street. Don't yeah. talk to that. <laughs> yeah. Guy. Stranger danger is the theme of Halloween for sure. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, oh my God, what's going on in the house? And of course, like when you're a kid, you don't really understand the reason why your parents said that. Um, so you just think, oh my God, that house has some magical, like dark portal to some dark place in there. Um, it made me want to go to that house more, honestly. When my I think, I think for kids, Halloween too, is their first window into the world of mysticism and magic and demons and ghouls and ghosts. And, 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 and when you first start learning that when you're a kid, it's, it's, it, for me, at least, I think probably for you and a lot of horror fans, it, it, you decide around that time like i think maybe this is my world that i want to live yeah. in and be a part of and you know i remember seeing thriller as a kid the michael jackson video and it was just my everything for a while <laughs> like it was yeah. like i couldn't I stop there's, there's a sense of adventure to halloween where you're kind of going on a mission you're like i'm going out with my friends there's no adults we have our like costumes on nobody knows who we are and we have to collect as much candy as possible so you're like you're going out on this adventure and you have this purpose. There's this like sense of purpose that you have. Um, I miss, I miss trick or treating. So do I, I know it's terrible. It's ridiculous. Like I, 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 it's this thing where I'm like, I had to let go of it a very long time ago and I still resented the fact that kids, adults aren't allowed to do it. It's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> um, Unfair. I, one of my other things that I think is wonderful about Christmas is we have all these songs we listen to at Christmas time, but like for me, the tubular bells has always been so eerie and sounds like the score from a horror movie. It, like, like it's, it's, it's like, it's like very similar to like the exorcist theme. Um, is there a, a, a Christmas carol or a Christmas song that you, that you find particularly creepy or eerie? Oh man, there's so many. And in the process, I listen to so many songs um in the process of working on the movie um the, the song we have in the movie is um uh i'll be home for christmas mm -hmm. um and we have that a few different versions of that um but there was one song we were listening to that i was considering which was i don't i, I don't remember what it's called but it's essentially talking about old saint nick landing on the roof and like it was a it was a home invasion Santa Claus song from like well, the thirties. 
<laughs> the one that I always said is like the creepiest lyrics is uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows oh, yeah. when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. It's like it, it's like a threat. That song. Yeah. Santa's <laughs> like... a, a scary dude. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, okay, so in wrapping up, uh, do you know what's next on your docket? Do you have a, an inkling of what you're going to be doing next? Um, before we talk about that, I also just want to share, I made a short, when at Glass Eye, I made a short Santa movie. Oh, you did? Um, yeah, that features... A real Santa Claus. A, a real a guy who really dresses up like Santa Claus. I was Claus like, you got the real, real guy? guy. <laughs> um, and anyway. How can uh, people how can can I see it somewhere or is it is it able to be watched? I will send it to you. Okay. Um it is available to be watched. And I forget even what I called it, but I shot it in 2018 as part of Glass Eye Picks does this uh thing where they have a bunch of different filmmakers each create a Christmas short. Oh, that's awesome. And I have to see it. So it was part of that. I must see it. Please do send that to me. Um, yeah, what are you working on next? What's what's coming down the pike for you? If, um that you can share. Uh th- there was a movie announced called Rachel, um, which is a paranoid sci-fi thriller. So hoping uh to dive back into that when the time is right. Well, Listen, I want to thank you for sitting down and talking with me about this movie because I love the movie. I think the Sacrifice Game is like going to become one that ends up on my uh, Christmas horror movie watch list. I think it's going to for a lot of fans. But it was really fun to sit here today and just kind of get into the movie with you. We were a little limited because we're doing this before people can know everything uh, there's other things that i'll maybe just ask you you know you'll get emails for being like hey, what about this but but thank you so much for uh for sharing your your memories and your your choices and and, and, and everything that went into this this really awesome christmas horror film that you've made thank you so much kevin thanks for having me anytime when af- after the next one's done you have to come back and tell us about that one sounds good all right You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and co-produced by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Hatton. Original artwork and design elements generously produced by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at, all one word, spillyourguts underscore podcast, and Twitter at spillyourguts underscore one, as in the number one. Post, comment, share, like, but don't forget that good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. The best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>